Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. This is Rob Weiss. I am so really glad you joined us today. Uh, I have a guest here that speaks to me to uh, some of the work that I believe the most strongly in, which is finding redemption for men and women who have acted sexually in ways that have harmed their lives. Some of you may know, and I'm going to, before I introduce my guest, tell a little story. Uh, there's a gentleman named Mark Salig who was arrested for looking at, at inappropriate pornography uh, a while ago. And Mark Salig was on the show Glee. He had a really wonderful role and was very talented and funny. And he also obviously also had a problem with porn. And when Mark was arrested and then sentenced, you know, it was really clear this was a guy who was not going to continue to be popular or famous in Hollywood. But what had never occurred to me was that he was going to do what he did. And so three weeks before Mark Salik was going to go to prison about a month or two ago. He killed himself, and I, you know, I'm not such. I'm not a. I wasn't a huge Glee fan. That all. It's not just a big, you know, art and in that way is not. You know, it's pop art. It was fun. It was interesting. But what was sad to me was that here is a man who was 28 years old. He made a mistake. He made a series of mistakes around sexual behavior that are really problematic that he needs to look at, he needs to learn from, and he may need punishment for. I don't know because I'm not aware of the individual things that he did or what happened. But I do know this, that most of the voices we hear on men who sexually act out today has to do with get rid of them, eliminate them. We don't want to see or talk to them ever again. We don't want them around our workplace or our families. And that message, while it may be useful to a victim, is not really useful to the culture overall because what it doesn't do for us is it doesn't speak to redemption. And on this show, when we talk about sex addiction and compulsive and problematic sexual behavior, we're talking a lot about men and women who have ruined their marriages, ruined their work situations, uh, let down their families, gotten arrested. And I think a lot of the reason I do this show is to give you guys hope that you can get past your consequences, that you can have a life beyond the problem that you're in right now. And Mark Salig, unfortunately, Salig is an example of someone who didn't know that, yeah, he was going to go to jail at 28. And yeah, he was going to lose his job and nobody in Hollywood was ever going to look at him again. But you know what? A couple of years later, he would have gotten out of jail and he could have started a new life and a new family and a new career. And he could have had, maybe he could have helped people in some way. Maybe he could have used what happened to him as a platform for good. But he didn't know that because he didn't know or see anything on TV or in the news about around men who make mistakes or have sexual problems other than they just simply are eliminated. 
So with that in mind, today I bring you a colleague and a friend of mine uh, by the name of Tom Ryan. Tom hails from Kansas City. He, is, uh, he was an ordained minister for over 30 years and is a certified uh, pastoral sex addiction counselor today. In addition to ministry experience, Dr. Ryan is personally familiar with the dynamics of and recovering demands uh, of being a sex addict because he is one. And he has had to seek and find redemption for himself. That's why Tom is on the show today. And if you want to learn more about him, by the way, he wrote a book under the name T.C. Ryan called A Shame No More, A Pastor's Journey Through Sex Addiction. Uh, he founded and is executive director of Living Integrated, a nonprofit organization helping both individuals and organizations deal with a cultural crisis of compulsive and problematic sexual behavior. Uh, Tom speaks to a variety of groups regarding recovery all over the country. I'm so glad to have him. I will say also that Tom and his wife, Pam, have been married, I think, almost 40 years and have grown children. And Tom mentors and pastors to a, a large group of men in the Kansas City area who are working through these very issues. He has found his redemption. Uh, welcome, Tom. Rob, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity, my friend. I did a brief description of uh, Mark Salling and the concept, which I know you were listening to, that our culture, our society, our churches, our religions, our, our morality uh, doesn't seem to allow much room for a man in particular who's made mistakes around sex to clean it up and have a new life for himself. It's kind of like you're damned to hell forever. And so, you know, given what I just talked about, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your story and maybe if you could put yourself in that young man's shoes, if you were ever in a place where you thought, well, redemption's never going to be possible for me, and then how you found your way to the next step. I mean, all of that stuff would be great. How, how did you get here, Tom? Well, I grew up in the Midwest and actually was going to be a high school English teacher, if you can believe it, and somewhere in the mystery of going through college and faith and developing a sense of personal, what do I want to be, what is my sense of place in the world, uh, felt what some people will use as that, that phrase of uh, got my calling or felt called into or th that kind of thing, felt called into ministry. So I pursued ministry, uh, went off to um, graduate school. Uh, in first in your neck of the woods, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, and that was a great experience for me, but it was late 70s, early 80s when I was at Fuller, so the air was a little thicker than I think it is now in Southern California. And then went to another neck of your woods uh, to Princeton University or Princeton Seminary in New Jersey for a year and then settled back in the Midwest. But the whole time that I was doing ministry as a young minister, married, starting a family, I was an undiagnosed, unrecognized sex addict. What, what I knew, Rob, was that I was just engaging in behaviors that were contrary to my morality, contrary to my sense of what my vows to my wife were and what my vows to the church were and what I thought a good Christian should be. And, and, when, and let me just ask real quick, Tom, when you say behaviors, we don't use graphic terms, but having affairs, having a casual sex, I mean, uh, things that obviously would not go with a marriage and a pastoral profession. What, can you give us a clue what kinds of things? Yeah, I hadn't progressed to that level at that point. So it was fantasy and masturbation and, and things around that. Um, flirting or, or overtures or just mostly living in my head. I was such an introvert and such a, well, introvert's the best word, I think, at growing up. And so I did most of my living in my head in terms of imagination and who I wanted to be. And that, it turns out there was a very good reason for that. But it wasn't until I went into therapy much later and unpacked a lot of my growing up years, as we have to do, and uh, realized what was behind the green door that I had nailed shut 
um, that I, there were good reasons that I would live in my head and look for escape and look for ways to handle my feelings and handle my stressors uh, the way that I did. But mostly it was fantasy, masturbation. It does progress. Uh, we know that if you just keep doing the same thing over and over, you need more and you need different. And this takes us to places that we originally wouldn't have gone on our own, but we get there because uh, it's just the way to cope. You've got to get that same level of buzz or that same level of blocking out. And that happened to me over time. So what, what you're saying, two th- you said two things that I want to clarify. The, the second point was that sex addiction can escalate. And, uh, and this is good information for people. So what was uh, a little bit of this and a little bit of stuff in my head now becomes being out in the world and being active, the addiction, and it just grows and grows because what was satisfying, distracting now no longer is, and you want a little bit more is kind of what you're saying. Right, exactly. There's a, a profound individual who I know is a colleague of yours and is a is a mentor at distance for me, Patrick Carnes, and I think he talks in several ways about addiction or compulsive sexual living is living without boundaries. And uh, an addict for me is somebody, and my life was somebody who kept drawing the line, drawing the boundary. Well, this is something I'll never do, or this is an area I'll never go to, or thank God at least I haven't done such and such. Mm-hmm. And then, um, in, in, you know, invariably you break that boundary. And then you've got the guilt, the shame, the remorse, which of course reinforces this sense of what is wrong with me? I'm a miserable son of a gun. What am I going to do? And that sense of emptiness and loneliness and isolation and, and self-castigation just fuels the desire to find the escape. And that, that was my life for a lot of years. You know, Tom, it's interesting because I, I understand uh, in part living a double life uh, living a secret life, and and many sex addicts do that with their partners or with their friends or people they work with. But you were standing on a pulpit. You were standing in front of large numbers of people, talking to them about how to have integrity in their lives, how to have intimacy in their lives, how to have love and connection in their lives. And yet, I'm gonna imagine you were the least intimate, least connected man in the room, and that must have been really painful. I mean, I know that we look, you know, the general person looks at that and say, oh, well, that's a hypocrite. That's easy to say. But I also, under, when I look at someone who's in that pulpit, I think of someone who's deeply struggling with painful issues about how do I live and help while I'm in pain and struggling at the same time. That's exactly right. You nailed it. And I, I, I appreciate your insight into that because where I was stuck for all those years was on the hypocrite diagnosis. All I saw and felt I was being was a liar, a fraud. I am grateful for this one thing in that I never settled into the, well, this is just the price that I have to pay or that I get to have for doing what I do. I do give competent ministry. I'm a good teacher. I care about people. I do good pastoral care. So this is just uh, the price of doing business. I never settled into that. I stayed in that very anxious, self-condemning place of, you got to get your stuff together. This is not okay. You are a fraud. You are a hypocrite. And of course, that fed the whole idea of, if anybody knew who you really were, they'd run the other way, Tom. If anybody knew who you were, you'd lose your job. You wouldn't be able to provide for your family. I think it's really important that you said what you just said a moment ago, because now we're talking about the same shame that every sex addict feels. You put it in a different context. You had a different way to hate yourself. You had a different way to condemn yourself, which is I'm a hypocrite. Other people have 
I'm a bad father. Uh, I don't, I, I, no one would really love me if they knew who I was or, but all addicts and sex addicts in particular, and I think you're pointing this out, have a way to leave themselves hating themselves. And sometimes I think maybe it's hard to know if you hate yourself first and the sexual behavior comes second or the self-hating hypocrite, I'm worth, I'm not worthwhile. I'm not worth loving. I'm a big liar. Whether that just inevitably follows addiction. But in either case, you kind of end up as a person who no longer believes in yourself, who no longer has faith in yourself, who sees yourself as a liar. And then there you were trying to inspire people. So what happened to your ministry and your marriage with all of this? It was a long attempt to try and um, deal with myself while continuing the ministry, and it ultimately couldn't work. It was back in 1992, I gulped really, really hard. At that point, Rob, I was still a young minister. I had a young family. My wife was a stay-at-home mom at the time, so we had four little kids. I was a church planter. My congregation is about four years old in suburban Kansas City. I had a lot of white-collar professionals, very intelligent people, well-meaning people. I mean, it was a, it was a good group. So you had the life you wanted. In one sense, I did. In another sense, the fact is I'm not wired to be an entrepreneur, and yet I was doing a very entrepreneurial thing. Uh, the other thing was that I was a functioning sex addict, but I didn't even have the recognition that that's what I was up against at the time. And so I gulped hard, went to a therapist. He, he wasn't trained necessarily, certainly not to the level of training that you have and that you give to others now, but he knew enough. The first thing he said was, well, Tom, I'd like you to go get a copy of and you'll love this, Out of the Shadows by a man named Patrick Carnes. And, and I write about this in a shame no more. I ordered it from uh, a Barnes and Noble in another part of town. And so that when I went to pick it up, uh, this is pre-Amazon days, if somebody, there wouldn't be anybody there noticing what book I was buying. And if they, they did, I, I would say it was for a parishioner. And, and I have to say something, Tom, because I too am a sex addict and I'm thinking, but where did you buy your porn? <laughs> so I'm thinking you had more uh, because we often, and I think this is worth saying, when I tell a sex addict, you know, you really need to go see this therapist or you need to go to that 12 step meeting or whatever support group. And they'll say, oh my God, but someone might see me walking in there and and I think how many massage parlors, how many yeah. <laughs> book, adult bookstores, strip clubs did you not give a second thought about walking into? But now when it's recovery-based, you're freaked out. So thank you for that point. Well, what you just highlighted is our varsity-level skill of compartmentalization, right? Mm. <laughs> when I'm living in the shadows, it's amazing what I'm willing to do. And when I think I'm living in the light, it's amazing what I'm not willing to do. So yeah, that was part of my dichotomy for sure. So how did you change? What, what mode, how did change come to your life around this? Slowly, uh, slowly. But I will say this, reading Dr. Carnes' Out of the Shadows was, was breathtaking for me because as I turned those pages, I had two simultaneous thoughts that just kept percolating in my soul. And one was, oh my gosh, I'm not the only person mm. that is yeah. this way. There's case study after case study, you know, anecdote after anecdote. Oh my goodness, you know, because part of the part of the grandiosity of our disease is that we think that there's nobody really quite as uh, big a failure as as we are. I want to say something about that too, Tom, because it, you're ringing bells for me because I remember, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with many a sex addict, and there is this feeling like even though I'm in an adult theater where there are 300 other men, <laughs> or even though I'm in a sex club where there are men and women doing all kinds of crazy stuff, or I'm seeing all this porn online where everybody's somehow it feels like I'm the only one right who's really the bad one everyone else is just they're not alcoholics they're just having a glass of wine I'm the only one who's a drunk 
And that is one of the first things we break through in the healing process is this, we break through the isolation of I'm the worst of the worst. Absolutely. It's so, it's so important to do that. It's a really fascinating thing how when I was acting out over all those years, it is such an isolating thing. We will use our sex, but sex, which is something that's designed to help us connect with others in healthy ways, we actually use it to isolate, keep ourselves from connecting with others in really good ways and healthy ways. Well, I would say, and let me just jump on that. I, I don't think the intention, I don't believe it's the sex addict's intention to isolate. I think they think or feel like they're moving toward connection or something meaningful, even though anybody standing on the outside would say, I don't think that's particularly connecting or meaningful. But in that moment, the addict feels powerfully like it is. Well, and this is what I think people who aren't addicts don't understand is that, and I'm not trying to justify it, but when I am acting out, there is a stimulation that's happening within my soul. There is a buzz of sorts. And your brain. And my brain. There's this sense of being alive. Now, in reflection, in cool reflection, it's, it's not an integrated sense of life. It's not a good way to live. It has its consequences that are unseen and unfelt at the time. It's eating potato chips when you're hungry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You might for the moment get something satisfying, you're not hungry, but ultimately you're just getting crap that isn't good for you and doesn't make you any less hungry than when you started. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, seeking integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So Tom, I want to know about how your wife, I mean, how did you begin to come out with these issues? Because I think that you, I mean, you wrote a book about it. Clearly, you didn't just find some a little bit of private recovery for yourself, figure out what you needed to change and quietly shift your life, you made it a much bigger issue. Can you talk about that? Sure. That first therapist that I worked with for about three years was, was really helpful. And uh, given what he knew in the early 90s, I think he was prescient. He, he helped me break down some of my barriers of isolation, and he helped me identify one friend that I might be willing to share my story with and see if this person would actually get up and run out of the room, or would he stay and stay present? And I had to say, Rob, I, I did choose wisely. That was guided well for me, and I chose a guy, and I shared with him. And now I'll tell you this, he wasn't my closest friend at the time. And, and part of that was me hedging my bets. So, you know, if he, if he gets up and bolts, you know, then... Cut your losses and run. Yeah, exactly. I haven't lost those that are closest to me. He has become the closest to me because he was one who listened to me, not an addict himself. He's familiar with dysfunction and dysfunctional families and all those things. He's just a real person. And we shared some uh, a lot of the same spiritual foundations and, and, and beliefs, but he listened to my story and looked at me and said, wow, how can I help? Mm. And then just as important, and you and I have had interactions with people who initially receive what we have to say and lean in. But then when we look up, they've kind of leaned back. They've gone, they disappear. They kind of move away. He, he's never done that to this day. He and I talk every week and uh, are involved in each other's lives. So you didn't get a bless your heart. 
Uh, you actually got someone who said, let me show up for you. And, and I want to reinforce, Tom, because you're making so many points about what good healing is about. I, 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 want, I don't mean to interrupt your story, but they're so helpful for people. You're telling me the first thing you did was you took all of the secrecy and all of the shame and you brought it to a professional who you knew could not share it. So you had confidentiality. And then he told you, go to someone that you trust who will have your back and start to open up about this, someone in your life who knows your life. And you did, and they didn't reject you. They, in fact, did the opposite. You were intimate with him, not sexually, but you were intimate with him by making yourself vulnerable and telling him what you were struggling with, which I don't think pastors do easily because pastors and therapists, you know, we like to say that we're the ones who know, (laughs) we're the ones who understand, we're the ones who help people. And you went to him and made yourself vulnerable and said, I don't know, and I need help. And what you got back, I think, was not only his participation and support, but probably inside of yourself, a whole lot of feeling like maybe there's hope here. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you, you said it well. Now, it was scary because you said something that's very important. Pastors don't tend to share easily, share what's personal. At this time in life, I'm four years into being the senior pastor of a young church. It's an isolating thing. We've done some, and this is a whole different podcast, a whole different uh, horse I like to get on. But what we've done, and Protestantism is no different than cleric, and then uh, Catholicism, we've, we've got a clerical class, and we've put people on pedestals uh, that they never should be on. And I certainly was in that place where you've got to be a certain kind of a person. And I wanted to be that kind of a person. It's not like I was trying to pretend or pull something over on people, but I couldn't make it happen. And so what, what John, my, my first therapist, was doing, was trying to move me into that place of where could I be safe? Where could I be honest? Where could I be open? You, where could you be you? Yeah, where could I be me? And that was a long journey because one friendship does not a life change, but it was a start. And then about a year later, uh, he'd forced me to start working on disclosure to Pam. And this is before we'd learned so much that we've learned now about how to do healthy disclosures. And um, so often they're done horribly. They're done in the flash of, of a heated moment or some guy's discovered doing something. And, and then the, the, the pressing questions come and he blurts everything out and it's done rather clumsily, even with uh, whether it's fear or whether it's a desire to try and clean up his side of the street. I think we can do a whole discussion later <laughs> about disclosure. Just but on I that. I think what you're about to say is it didn't go so well with your wife. No, I know. Quite the contrary. John, this is where John was unbelievably uh, inspired. I don't know how he pulled it off, but he guided me, knowing what we knew, what little we knew then, he still guided me to do about as good a job, I think, in 1993 as somebody might pull off. I wrote down what I needed to say. I cleared the decks of no kids around and gave her space. I made an appointment with her if she wanted to go see him the very next day. Uh, I did it in the middle of the summer. The kids were in school. I just, just made it so that she had space to react however she wanted to react. And then I gave her all these pages and it was all, it it was a whole thing, Rob. It was a whole nine yards. It wasn't, uh, you know, a partial disclosure and there was more to come later. It was the whole thing. Do you think your life would, I mean, I would have thought, well, that's the end of my kids. That's the end of my marriage. And she's probably going to go out and tell everybody I'm working with as a pastor. So this is potentially the end of everything if I talk to my spouse. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. My anxiety was (laughs) off the charts. I mean, that month before, because I'd set the date and I was working towards this, and my acting out the month before was just ridiculous. I mean, I look back on it, I, you know, the title of my book might be called 
ashamed no more. But that's, bless their hearts, that's InterVarsity's title, not mine. I'm still struggling with shame. When I look back at certain eras of my life, I just go, oh my goodness, there's no good reason for you to be alive, much less uh, doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, that was a tough period. And yet I I think you know, and I don't know that the people who are listening know that there are promises made to us about, you know, in the 12 step programs and um, not quite as uh, overtly in therapy that if we do the work we need to do, that our lives are not only going to get better, but they might even be better than they were before. And that we won't have that shame in the way that we had it before. Uh, and that maybe even as in your case, I think all the stuff you had so much shame about and you hid and you, and you knew that was the thing you would be rejected and hated for, those are the very things that you've built a new career around, I think, and a new ministry. Is that right? Yeah. Now, it was a long time. It was 15 years getting, 15 years plus getting there because here's what happened in 1993 is when I'm disclosing to my wife. And, and as I look back on it, what we did was we did our work. We read, we went to see the therapist. We, I was engaged in going to an S recovery group. We developed an accountability group around us that was supportive, not punitive. But I stayed in ministry and I stayed pastoring the church. And that was the counsel we were given by those who were close to us and were around us. And uh, somebody can look back on that history and they can score it a different way. But we tried to do the best that we could. We had an open mind. We were very willing for me to leave ministry and do something else. But we tried. The metaphor I use now, Rob, is... The plane of my life was, was still had engine difficulties. Uh, we'd gotten on a different course, but I had engines that were beginning to fail. What I know now is I wish I could go back and take young Tom and pull him out of the situation altogether and put him in competent treatment in a treatment facility and really pull apart life. But it would have caused, you know, would have required a, a, a timeout in, and being in a, and I'm not making excuses. My choices are my choices. My <laughs> life's my life. But I was in a very conservative denomination, a small denomination, and there just is no way to do that without just simply quitting and disappearing. And funding-wise and life phase-wise, I couldn't figure out how on earth to do that, and I didn't. So we tried to repair the plane while we stayed in midair. And by um, come forward 15 years, by the 2008, I've learned a lot. I'm progressing in recovery. I'm working with another therapist. I've done a lot of things, but I still haven't gotten to sustain sobriety. My shame is eating me alive. I'm still living a hidden life. It doesn't work. I, I hadn't fully brought myself to where my public persona was able to honor who I was privately. My public persona was still in some degree a performance persona, even though I wanted to be genuine and I wanted to be sincere. And it was eating me alive. And therefore, when you're being eaten alive by your stressors and by that voice that says, you are still a fraud, if they ever find out, dot, 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 then we do what? Our brains will go back to the same old source for comfort and for getting away. You know, how do I, how do I unplug from this for a little while and find some relief? So this is interesting. Again, I want to say from a recovery perspective for the people who are listening is, you know, there's a process where we clean up our lives. There's a process where we understand our problem, sexual and romantic behaviors, where we begin to put boundaries around them. We let people in. We let them know about it. We just do some disclosure. We make ourselves accountable and we go about fixing the problem. And sometimes what we discover, I think Tom is saying, is that our lives are not working or our lives, the way they have been laid out with the kind of work we do, kind of hours we keep, whether we travel, uh, in this case, Tom 
Tom being in an environment where he couldn't really be himself, then sometimes we have to take the next step of saying, wow, if I want to keep this healing process moving, if I want to stay in this, then I might have to change other parts of my life because now I can see in part how the way I'm living was reinforcing my problem. Is that, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what did you do? I blew my life up. I, I couldn't figure a way out. I know it sounds crass, but I couldn't figure a way out. Uh, the, the therapist that I was working with uh, at that point uh, is, is the therapist I work with today still and really was in many ways responsible for, for saving my life, Robin. I'm not just saying that to, to blow smoke at therapists, um, but, but I'm, I'm a beneficiary of competent therapy. And, mm-hmm. and this, this guy was working with me, and I, he worked with me long enough before I crashed my life that it, he really knew me. He met Pam several times. He, I mean, for crying out loud, I would refer people when, in my congregation when they needed some psychotherapeutic help. I have to clarify, though, Tom, what does it mean to blow up your life? I'm not sure. That's, yeah, well, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you. But Mike had been saying to me, you know, there, there's some pieces that are hidden. I would send you away to treatment if that was, a, was an option, but you're, it's not an option for you. There's nothing I can do in terms of an intensive outpatient work with you unless you leave ministry. And I hate for you to do that, Tom, because you're really good at what you do. He, he had enough people from my congregation uh, over the last few years before I left that, that were in his office, that through them, he'd get a little snapshot of what life was like at our church. And, and he said, you know, you're, people have a sense that you're down on the boat with them. You're not standing up on the edge of the cliff, just yelling instructions. And, and, and you relate to folks and they know that you care about them and you preach pretty transparently, except for this hidden part of your life. And, and uh, I hate for you to go, but I don't know the, how you are going to be able to keep this going. And uh, there was a day, it was a spring day, a meeting canceled. I went out to a far-flung suburb of Kansas City to pick up some dog food, and there's a park that I'd been in, and I'd talk with guys, and I'd pick up porn, and I'd talk to different ones, and through some different behaviors that I won't go into, I got myself arrested. Ah. So I was I was the pastor in the park that got arrested, and um, that was in 2008. That was a horrible day. Really, we're recording this really at the uh, right about the 10 year anniversary of that, by the way. So, congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and I just mean that you're still here. I mean, it takes those moments for some yes. of us. Well, I was I was 26 hours in jail, and I will tell you, in the middle of the night, I had concocted my way out. I got to that place that Mark Selling got to. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I knew I was in a cell by myself. Uh, the guard went by every 15 minutes. I was supposed to be arraigned and dismissed out in two hours. I wasn't. I was held overnight. I was able to make that one call, uh, and I called my wife, but it was hours after I was supposed to be home. And I, I, don't think, I don't think, Rob, I'll ever forget the sound of Pam's voice when she answered the phone, you know, after that mechanic jail voicemail rigmarole goes on will you accept the charges and she faintly says yes and i tell her what has happened and um not only did i think my life was over rob i wanted my life to be over i mean i'm i'm the classic screw up here i'm the guy that knew better i'm the guy that 16 years before had been told you're a sex addict i'm the guy that had tools that went to groups i'm the guy who's a teacher i'm the guy who's supposed to have his crap together well, I, I, with all due respect, that, that I think that's the first problem <laughs> right there. <laughs> well, 
I don't disagree. I do not disagree with you. Oh, oh I agree. I mean, you're talking, you're preaching to the, you know, the, the, the therapist who knows everything. So I'm right there with you. And, you know, one of the great gifts for me as a recovering therapist in this area is to talk about the challenges that we have because we don't get it perfect. It's not drugs and alcohol. It is a different path, you know, and, we, and that's another conversation I think we should have. But I know also know that we're running out of time and I want to, I definitely, you know, a couple of things, Tom, I wonder if you'd come back and if we could do more of this. Sure. I just particularly like to talk about pastors and ministers and rabbis and people in faith who are struggling with these issues because I've certainly, well, you know, Tom, I ran a clinic. I have, uh, I, I had enough rabbis for a minion at one time. I had enough Catholic priests to, you know, probably elect a pope. <laughs> and, um, you know, and these men were in for going to strip clubs and looking at porn, you know, doing things that were so against their faith, you know, and so this is not an unusual population to me, but I understand the pain is so much greater when you are holding yourself out as someone to look up to and you can't look yourself in the mirror. Well, and I, and I, and I like to say this, Rob, uh, and your listeners may or may not, may not get this. There's that tendency for all of us to look at somebody who's supposed to be the moral sheriff in town and say, oh my gosh, what a loser, what a hypocrite, what a liar. But the clientele you just described, I, I guarantee you that, that almost to a person with maybe a few exceptions, every one of them really struggle with this great gross dichotomy in their lives. These were sincere servants who really wanted to help others, who really wanted to honor their vows and commitments, who really wanted to do the best that they could, but have found themselves in this diabolical catch in life and there's this one there's this one area of relief and they they just shut everything else down for a little while to go and engage it get that little bit of relief and then come back out into the light where, where of course they're met with that yawning sense of emptiness and and, and self-isolating condemnation uh, but they still are trying to make life work and trying to be of use to others I guarantee you that's that all of them had or most of them had a very sincere motivation but they were stuck and they needed help and they didn't know how to find it one of the things I was also thinking, Tom, um, in addition to inviting you back is, you know, I don't know, I think I've told you this, sexandrelationshiphealing.com, uh, the site that we're evolving for online support uh, in an ongoing way, is going to have little corners. So on Sex and Relationship Healing, we're going to have, let's say, a gay men's corner. We're going to have a wives corner. We're going to have a spirituality corner. And those groups might meet once a week or once a month or where people can confidentially, you know, if you're a pastor, you could sit with other pastors all over the world and talk about the issue. And so I, I would love, I'm thinking about Tom's corner. <laughs> I'm thinking about having a little spot online where you can come up and once a week or once a month or whatever it is, sit down and be in a room with completely confidentially uh, online with pastors and rabbis and priests and ministers and talk about this dilemma. Because I think among the loneliest people I know are people in a position of power with secrets like you and I have held. Yeah. And um, it's very hard to open your heart and help people as, as you say, you know, we can, the gifts are there, but we have to get out of our own way and um, covering it up, hiding it and trying to pretend it just doesn't work. So is there anything, Tom, uh, you know, I did want to say again to everyone that Tom's written a fabulous book called A Shame No More. A Pastor's Journey Through Sex Addiction. And I think it's very applicable for this population in particular, you know, if you're married to or involved with or are a spiritual, an actively religious person, and you have this kind of conflict around sexuality, these are the kinds of things that are worth reading. So you know that you're not alone, so that you can have hope, so that you can reach out to Tom and, and talk to him. And by the way, I want to ask you that, Tom, if they want to reach out to you, um, how would someone find you? Our website is not up yet, but you can go to it and find my phone number. So you can go to and go to livingintegrated.org, and there's there's a way on there to get a hold of me. And um, 
love to be of use to anybody that I can. No, I think you're of great help here, Tom, and, and I'm looking forward to see, hearing how your recovery has helped others because, again, your your healing is not people like you, and, and I will say myself as well, we don't get to just heal for ourselves. I mean, we get to heal others. And I, actually, I think that's one of the tenets of 12-step recovery and, and really good therapy is take what you got and put it on the road and help other people. And that is what you're doing, and I would imagine that helps keep your health and your healing alive. Yeah, absolutely. It's essential. We are going to welcome you back again and again, Tom Ryan from Kansas. So grateful that you joined us today. Thank you for your time. Well, again, my friend, thank you. I appreciate everything you do, Rob. Uh, You mean a lot to me and uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. We're going to keep helping people. Thank you, Tom. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.